Welcome to the podcast for Healing Neurology, where we talk about everything that can help heal your neurology, which is really everything from food, lifestyle, and medicine to nature, culture, and politics. There's no topic too big or too small. I'm Jillian Ehrlich, family nurse practitioner certified in Ayurveda and functional medicine. And I am thrilled about our guest today, Dr. Anthony Padula, who is a triple board certified physician in adult medicine, formerly known as internal medicine, pediatrics, and rheumatology. He trained as a rheumatology fellow at the University of California, San Francisco, and practices as a rheumatologist at the Northern California Arthritis Center in Walnut Creek. Dr. Padula has worked with and treated patients of all ages, from preterm infancy to the elder years, in a wide range of settings, from the ICUs to the outpatient clinic offices. He's followed the life cycle and has developed an in-depth understanding of health and a comprehensive approach to healthcare. Dr. Padula brings to his patients a combination of extensive medical training and experience as an elite athlete. His time as a competitive rower included years of intense practice and training, and his understanding that the water taught me how to row has translated into letting his patients patients guide him in their healing. His mission is to empower his patients to achieve a higher level of health and life performance by redefining their vision of health and the doctor-patient relationship. His philosophy is based on simplifying health information and strategies and deepening his patient's understanding of their body. So Dr. Padula, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. You know, it is my temptation to talk about rowing for the next 45 minutes because it is something that I have loved deeply. Um, But I think we should probably, this is a healthcare podcast, and so we should probably talk about healthcare. So let's start with rheumatology. What is rheumatology? You know, rheumatology actually got its name from that back when what was called rheumatism, which was aches and pains. Mm -hmm. What they called rheumatism back then is at least over 200 different diseases. They just called it the same thing because they hadn't figured it out yet. So (laughs) coming from that actually is that rheumatology is that looking into all of those things and it ends up being, it is this wide range because it's looking at the whole body and there's different ways that you can get to those aches and pains. And you have both the wear and tear that happens in the body, the tendonitis, the osteoarthritis. Then you have a lot of autoimmune processes that we can dig into deeper. Not all, but many will have those musculoskeletal complaints. And then there's a whole bit bit of uh, inherited conditions, the way that the body is made or faulty in certain ways of the collagen or the tendons or the bones of the body that lead to those aches and pains. So it came to it from a problem solving sense of these people have aches and pains, what's going back on. And then mm-hmm. they created a specialty because all of them ended up looking similar and you had to differentiate them. <laughs> <laughs> so wild. It is. Yeah. Rheumatology seems like a very, very old word. And so what is rheumatology now? Like, how do you think about it now? You know, rheumatology at its heart is one of the medical specialties that's a detective, right? Mm -hmm. Because you're used to looking at the whole body and the multi-system disorders, you get good at that, right? We only get good at what we do. And that's where we need to rely on each other's expertise in the medical system. And what got me interested in it was two things. It just made more sense that when you see someone hurting or something like that, then you start to look at, oh, it's not just about that joint, but there's other things going on in the rest of the body that's connected to what's going on there. And rheumatology really is that dance of looking and diagnosing being a detective. The other part is, is that I came along during my training at a time where the immune system and the treatments we use were really starting to pick up speed and were changing the way we treated patients. Things that used to be put people in bedridden or disabled, now were completely treatable to where they could go on and run around this world as much as they could do because the joints and the immune stuff was not going to hold them back. 
So what were some of the old treatments for rheumatological conditions? Good old aspirin was a heavy hitter <laughs> for quite a few years. <laughs> they used to treat okay. rheumatoid arthritis with aspirin. And what they would say is, keep taking as many pills as you can until your ears ring and then cut down by two a day. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> you literally found that <laughs> highest level that you could tolerate, back it off before you cause the nerve damage in the ear. And oh, that, my goodness. that was your dose. <laughs> wow. Wow. I'm glad we've evolved. <laughs> yes. You know, and then for, you know, when they developed medicines over the years, hydroxychloroquine came around 80 years ago, and that's been in the news a lot lately. And then you know, other anti-inflammatories, a good old sulfa drug, sulfasalazine was shown mm -hmm. to be an anti-inflammatory. And then even then one of the game changers was methotrexate, which is an old chemotherapy, but this is the beauty of how just the title alone doesn't give you the answer in the body is that medicine in small dosages once a week actually acts as an anti-inflammatory. It doesn't kill the cells and it actually buffers the immune system quite well. So those were three of the main treatments along with corticosteroids uh -huh. that really maintained rheumatology, you know, for 50, 60 years in the 19th century. And it really did do something about a big part of rheumatology then was bracing the joints and, you know, stabilizing joints from protection and how to get along with the day. Those each kind of few decades, a new medicine came about and started to do better but many patients, it was just, you could just try to slow down that train of damage, not that you could ever stop it. So even by the time I started getting into medicine, the immunologic medicines had come and that's yeah. where the game changed. Talk to us about, in terms of the history of like, how did they figure out the immunological medicines? How did they go after the immune system when, you know, what you see on the outside is a joint or a muscle or like a, you know, it's a physical tissue, but in immunology is not physical tissues, it's cellular signaling. How did they make that leap? It's a great question. There were a couple in increments along the way from a medical system standpoint. Mm -hmm. um, the immune system is humbly incredibly complicated, right? It takes a big uh, amount of our genetic you know, teaching and in, in our cells, dedicates a lot of space to the immune system. And um, there was a lot to figure out there. Actually, so much so that when HIV hit, they realized that they could and got a lot of funding because of the emergency that it, it was, they realized they couldn't just treat HIV. They had to learn about the immune system better because they didn't know it well enough even to put in yeah. implementation. Uh -huh. So a lot of research went back to the basic science of immunology just to understand so that they could then go after the infectious disease. So they, a lot more was dedicated to the basic science and understanding the immune system. That led to us starting to observe that in these diseases, this wasn't just pain, it was inflammation. The pain was secondary. And that's a really an important concept, I think, for people that we can come back to is that when you get pain, you have to differentiate the causes. And one of the worst things to do in medicine is to treat the symptom before you find the cause. Right. And we've all seen the outcomes of doing that within pain in the body, right? Sometimes pain is a sign. And within this step, it, when pain is from inflammation, you don't want to mask the pain, you want to treat the inflammation. And so they started trying to get at that. But the, it's actually a cool story. One of the biggest breakthroughs was rheumatology and autoimmune is a small number of patients compared to infections in the world, cardiovascular mm -hmm. disease, mm -hmm. cancer, mm -hmm. right? It just doesn't hit that peak mount in terms of criticalness when, we're, when companies are looking at what new medicine to evolve into. 
Mm-hmm. So a class of medicines were actually originally created to help with sepsis, severe infections where the body can't keep up anymore and is really starting to threaten the organs. And they found that there were really high levels of inflammation, specifically TNF-alpha. When that went, they started, they created a medicine to bind that up saying, well, if we can lower that, then we'll help people in these bad septic uh, states in the ICU. It did not go well. They gave it to them and more people died on them. So they went, they, those went back to the shelves. And then a very clever scientist noted, it's a good medicine. We're just using it in the wrong way. And they pulled Mm -hmm. it off the shelf and tried it in rheumatoid arthritis. And that's where the game changed. It was not created for rheumatoid. It was created for sepsis. It did not work. And then someone, uh, a clever group of scientists said, I think it's, this is the right place to use it. That's fascinating. So in sepsis, we need tumor necrosis factor alpha. We need that inflammation in order to do something that keeps us alive. But that at low levels, similar to what you were talking about with methotrexate, you know, in higher doses, it's going to kill cancer cells, but in lower doses, it can be used for this inflammation. And so TNF alpha, and what are those drugs? Which are those TNF alpha drugs? Yeah, that was etanercept, adalimumab, infliximab were the first ones to market, you know, kind of decades ago. And science was really cool because you create these molecules mimicking our own antibodies or or receptors in our own body to go and attach specifically to that cytokine, that molecule. And that's what works. It's very specific. It it doesn't do these broad ranges like these other immune medicines that slow down the immune cells from within in a broader range. These were Mm -hmm. very specific targets. And then they found like the question is when you bring that down, can bad things happen? So that's the balancing act, right? Right. Is that TNF alpha, it's actually named for tumor necrosis factor because it actually plays a role in the immune system's patrolling of our things for when cells go bad or turn, you know, malignant. Right. Mm-hmm. So the immune system mm-hmm. is there for two purposes to protect against foreign invaders as well as self-surveillance to keep track of bad cells and to kill off good cells or when cells go bad in the body so they don't evolve into cancer. Right. Because cancer and autoimmune disease are kind of two sides of the same coin in some respects, right? I would say there's a big overlap in all those things. I mean, there, mm-hmm. there's a lot has to go wrong, right, for a cancer cell. It's not just one step. Part of the way cancer spreads is it confuses the immune system not to attack the mm-hmm. cancer cell. That's where they <laughs> it, like it gets very layered and those targets right? The the cancer cells use those same cellular targets to express or hide to get what they want from the body. When the immune system, can you talk a little bit more about the immune system and it's kind of its surveillance and how much cellular communication is there going on in the body at any one time? How can we think about that? You know, uh, it's a great, I have to even peel the question off because, you know, I'm one who thinks about the body as the body doesn't have systems. It's a whole thing. We use systems to help simplify it for us to understand something much more complex. Uh-huh. Systems are, or help us understand a model, but the body doesn't think it's systems. It's doing all this stuff. The same cells, messengers can be used in many different ways in the body. Bone cells come from the same immune cells and have a lot of same receptors. And that's just one of many examples. But I would say the immune system, first off, is... It evolved through different, you know, it itself evolved, right? And there's kind of two main parts to the immune system. There's the ancient innate immune system, Mm -hmm. right? That reacts instantly, very quickly. It's always there in the body, ready to go, but it can only rev up so high. Mm -hmm. can only do so much. Then the adaptive immune system is the one that is always trying to learn. 
Whereas the innate reacts, the adaptive immune system tries to learn and get very specific. So when you have a virus going through your body, your immune cells in part will react a little bit from the innate to try to fight off really quickly, just in a non-specific way. Then you have a higher level of integration and communication that is extraordinarily complex, talking to each other, messaging each other, finding which marks on that um, virus it is best to, which antibody is fitting best and holding it back the best. And that's where your immune system learns and remembers through your lifetime. And so I would definitely back up and say, it is more important to think about the immune system as an orchestra rather than high, low, on or off. It's about coordination. Like I said, I like your wording of the communication. The cells obviously are responding. I think it actually helps more to think of the immune system as a sense in the body, the way it's sensing things Mm -hmm. more than just this thing that turns on and off and fighting. It's sensing our cells, our state. It's a part of that communication. And your understanding of the immune system is so inherent to kind of pick up on that. But it is, right, our immune system is the way our body learns about the environment around us. 80% of the immune system lines the gut. The gut is where our body interacts with the external world. Mm -hmm. And that's by design. Mm -hmm. It's doing that purposefully, Mm -hmm. right? You have a barrier on your skin. The barrier on the inside from the mouth through is more porous. So it needs the immune cells to be patrolling as a way of sensing the environment and what's around it, as well as to protect against invaders. It's trying to do all that once. And when you really think about it, I mean, the fact that we can like wake up in the morning and open our eyes and have, you know, perceive light and then put our feet on the floor and get up is kind of remarkable when you think about how many teeny tiny things are happening inside to make that all possible. I love that. I think um, that whole thought about you wouldn't want to have to control everything going on. Your body. <laughs> can you, yes. Yes, that's exactly like if you had to be a puppeteer and be moving these things manually. That's also the great entrance as to when you talk about what's good for the body or bad, it's because your body is reacting in those innate ways that have been patterned that are automatic. And what you're really saying, if I can just paraphrase here, is that our immune system has consciousness. Our, con- our, our immune system, our immune cells, both individually and together, ha- perceive our environment, make a decision and respond. I think it goes even deeper than that, because absolutely, if you think of it as a sense, it is part of the inputs. Yeah. It also goes on the back end of the immune system, actually, from a cellular level is linked to your metabolism. You know, the last steps of uh, glycolysis, um, the cellular metabolism, the pruvate kinase M2 enzyme actually Mm -hmm. is directly affected to the immune system. But there's that interaction. So it's not just the perceiving, as you said, as well as communicating back, but it literally changed the perception. Ah, right. So it is a system that consciousness is is continually learning just as we learn, you know, from relationships in our life or from news or from our environment, we learn and we change our behavior based on what we learn. Our immune system is constantly also learning about what keeps us safe metabolically, physiologically in our system and is making those changes in our physiology in order to support our success and our survival. Yeah. And this is where I think when we talk about, you know, all the challenges the human body has right now, right? And, and mm-hmm. I think it's an important one because the biggest threat is something under the term of systemic chronic inflammation. It's yeah. actually the cog that connects everything going on with the major players, 
from the diabetes and the metabolic issues to the changes in the immune system to the cardiovascular and heart diseases, right? To moods, depression and anxiety, the loss of muscle as we age. It's not just age, it's really this inflammation. There's a direct link and it's through systemic chronic inflammation that all those things that people are told to do, eat better, sleep, exercise, (laughs) but it's not this yeah, there's all these good things. And then this happens. It's directly through the immune system that it's causing the damage. And that's that concept of systemic chronic inflammation through all these inputs, through all of these inputs come to play out. And that's why it's hard to separate out like a rheumatoid patient untreated has the same cardiovascular risks as a diabetic patient. So your cholesterol goals, your cardiovascular risks are the same. Now, we've gotten so good at treating the inflammation that that can all go away if you actually treat it fully with the variety of medicines, as well as the pillars of health. There's yeah. 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 And the other Mm -hmm. thing I would add into this is Mm -hmm. because I skipped a little topic, allergies. Yeah. Let's talk about allergies. Allergies (laughs) are really kind of interesting, right? They're increasing. There's many reasons. It's not just one. Mm -hmm. Obviously my sister did her PhD in public health studying air pollution. So she, I've learned more than my fair share, just being in the same room with her at times. (laughs) He's amazing, Uh but it really does. That's part of a non-specific stimulation to the immune system, right? Your body's immune system, which as you said, learns sometimes learns incorrectly. So your immune system is trying to differ from in utero to birth and onward. It's trying to learn what do I accept and what Mm -hmm. do I fight? Talking back to your major concepts in the world, what Mm -hmm. do I fight? (laughs) What do I accept is actually a crux and really Mm -hmm. important for your immune system. This is what it's trying to learn. Mm -hmm. And this is why those things that we have identified as harmful to the body is it because it turns on the immune system when it should not be turned on. Allergies are a part of that. I have a lot of thoughts trying to get through the door at the same time. (laughs) Number one, the Sanskrit word for immunity translates as tolerance, because when you are tolerant of something, then it doesn't get a rise out of you. So it's the same way that, you know, somebody can call you fat and ugly. And if you take it personally, you're going to have actually a response of your immune system. You know, your cells are going to, different DNA is actually going to turn on and off based on how you feel in that social situation. We know that from social genomics. So, but if you, if the person who says that is you don't believe them and they're, they have no impact on your life, then it doesn't have that impact on your physiology. So here's the question is, you know, in our modern life, there are so many things that are just flat out wrong about how we live and how we've evolved. It's like our system is constantly trying to tell us that on a low grade level. No, you shouldn't have lights on at night. You should, your eyes should be adjusting to dark. You should be doing different things with your melatonin in your pineal gland, and you should be exercising more. You should not be so sedentary. You shouldn't have so much fructose. There's all these components. So at some level, this chronic low grade inflammation is actually our body saying, what the fuck people like wake up, do this differently breathe, you know, find clean air, but then it's impacting us. And some of those things we can change and some of them we can't, or some of them, it's a longer story to try and change. Um, And so what we're doing when we give people these anti-inflammatories is we're essentially quieting down the signal, be it a correct signal of like, get out, (laughs) or be it an incorrect signal of something that should be tolerated that's not. But how do you, as a physician, differentiate all of that for patients? Like, how can we think about our our perceptions of inflammation? Like, how do we know? How can we distinguish what's an accurate from an inaccurate perception of our immune system? It's a great question and insight just in the framing of the question. You know, there's a couple parts to it is one, I think first to 
there is this big challenge because our body and our minds are being challenged in a way that our body never got to evolve to, right? For how long evolution took and the way our immune system evolved did not get a chance to interpret bright computer screens, 24-7 light, and artificial molecules in the form of pollution or trans fats or, right? There's a whole host of them. It was never taught how to do that. And it can't evolve into it. So we have to control that a little bit or understand it. And I do like to go back to that part for my patients because your immune system is not just flawed. It's really trying to be understanding. It's trying to protect you by reacting to these things. It never had the chance to learn that that's not serving your bigger purpose, right? I even think that little slight mental change is that we all told these things are bad for us and they're definitely harmful, but understanding your immune system, even allergies, right, are a little complex just to go into it a little bit, right? Allergies are not just because that allergen is in the environment, right? There's not magic happening. There's reasons your immune system (laughs) has learned to react to it. And it's complex. We're still learning. Our our immune system learns, but there's, depending on the environment that we're born into, may activate genes right from birth or not. That whole part of it, epigenetics, plays out differently, even with the same genetic background. Then, depending on the microbiome, a favorite topic of both of ours, that may change, right? The microbiome is not the same generationally because of changes in the environment and changes. There's an extinction going on in a lot of the good bugs in our body because of that. Then there's the way the immune system evolves, always taking in from the external advice. So if you're brought up in too clean an environment, your immune system actually gets more allergies, right? And we've seen those you know, brilliant studies layered on in recent years of really understanding this better. Tolerance, once again, what do we want to, our immune system needs to learn So there's just keeping it away from everything. It doesn't get to learn too much of an onslaught. This is where you can develop asthma or reactions in the gut just because of the onslaught of too many, not just a specific immunologic reaction, but just too much stuff to handle, right? You don't have to, you can get an asthma attack for someone with that predisposition, not be off an allergic trigger, or you can just have a lot of nonspecific dust that just kind of stimulates the immune system because the immune cells say you shouldn't be in here. Yeah. And (laughs) And you shouldn't be in here and you, and you, and you, and you, and then it's just like, ah. (laughs) Yes. And actually that reminds me of a topic that I did want to introduce is we always talk about autoimmune, but everyday people outside of medicine are ready to evolve that a little further in differentiating Mm -hmm. autoimmune when your body recognizes and attacks a part of your own self versus Uh autoinflammatory, which is not specific. It's just your immune system can't put the brakes on. Because they really are different, right? Now, I think a lot of gets budged into autoimmune, that a lot of it's just this inflammatory that the immune system can't slow down. Once again, about what the patient will do about it goes back to why I have it and understanding that there are differences and there can be overlap, but understanding those differences might even perceive what is best for you differently off of that understanding. Let's get a little specific in terms of, you know, patients who are listening are going to have, if you're not feeling well, and it's something to do with autoimmune or autoinflammatory or, you know, aches and pains, just straight up old rheumatology, you're going to have a whole host of labs drawn. Can you talk a little bit about the labs that reflect the innate immune system, the labs that reflect the adaptive immune system and kind of how we're in labs that reflect allergy? Well, that's a great question. And I will start to say is that going back to the thought of what we're really measuring in the body on the first level is the way your body has reacted. So it all goes into the soup. 
So mm-hmm. what I'm first trying to understand, I'm actually not trying to differentiate that yet because there's actually a lot of coordination even in those, even in the same disease. Um, but what does help is if you're hurting, you first want to say, actually, the very first step is, is that coming from inflammation or not? Mm-hmm. A lot of medicine and a lot of things, if we just actually, everyone went from pain and first said, is this an inflammatory pain, meaning immune system? And I can get back to that versus there's other reasons for pain. And so that is actually the big step. You'll see that in the blood, in the C-reactive protein, a marker of inflammation, the erythrocyte sedimentation rate, which is in, an indirect measure of inflammation, just the way the blood settles in a tube. And those two actually are big differentiators because a patient can come in, I hurt all over my shoulders and hips. And if the CRP and SED rate are normal versus not, really helps get you down that diagnostic mm-hmm. trail quicker than anything else. I would love to say to patients is that, it is, don't guess at the diagnosis, just try to get it in the right barrel. Uh-huh. <laughs> You'll get further, right? I love the TV show House MD back because it would always say, it's not lupus. Because if you Google four symptoms of any four symptoms, lupus <laughs> is the first thing comes up. Yes, yes. And lupus is one of mine. It's mm-hmm. an extraordinarily complex disease that can do all of the different things, but that's, you don't just guess at that. Because you can actually check an immune test of an ANA, and if that's negative, that's not it. Tests aren't always yes or no, but there are certain immune tests that you can do looking at the way the body creates antibodies and that we can measure those very well in the blood. And so an ANA, an anti-nuclear antibody, an antibody is going to be part of that adaptive immune system, right? Exactly. So that's all about the antibodies from the adaptive immune system, but that's all that test can do. And it just tells you, and not every autoimmune disease is using antibodies, but in those that do, you can find the antibody. (laughs) (laughs) And that's a a big yes and no question that you can answer in the blood. Not all things can be answered in the blood, but that can. Our clinic, we do immense amount of antibodies because there are so many more than we even have testing for, which we know. Um, But we send antibody testing, we do through Vibrant America, we do, there's a list of like 50 different neurologically focused antibodies that we test for. We do, we, there's a test called Celtrend that we send to Germany for specific antibodies. We do Mayo panels or Washington University panels for antibodies for myositis or for, you know, all sorts of different, you know, there's just like the, the number of antibodies that you can test is pretty much like the number of stones that are on a beach. Like you can just really, it can go on forever and ever. And that's why as the detective in medicine, you want to get it in the right barrel because yes. if you just go up at the blood test alone, there's not enough of them to really, until you get it narrowed down and really specific yeah. check. Yeah, that's why one of the things that I do as a standard and clinicians will and should is just because someone hurts in a place uh-huh. doesn't mean there's other things. Your kidneys don't have ner- nerve cells except on the outer layer. So only when the kidney swells so much that it could cause pain, you could have a lot of damage happening in the kidney and have zero pain or yeah, be able yeah. to perceive it. Yeah. So you uh-huh. want to get a scan of the other organs. So the blood counts, the liver and kidney, you know, looking at the yeah, other yeah. organs, it's really important to be for guessing first define the problem. And yes. that, that does take looking at those other things. You know, if I'm fatigued, if people just check a thyroid, they may guess right, but there's a 200 things that can cause fatigue. Yes. The thyroid is just one of many. It's an important thing to check, but if you're going to check for fatigue, you want to look at a broader range, not just guess this is thyroid, yes. right? Because you're, you're more likely to miss something. Going back, I'll say another thing that how this kind of plays in, we played off the TNF and sepsis. Well, what else happens when you get sick? 
is you get anemic. And guess what? If you try to fill up the anemia in the ICU, people have worse outcomes. That is the natural adaptiveness of the body to inflammation. You don't want that high hemoglobin and hematocrit. People do worse in the ICU if you artificially elevate it. Do you so, know why that uh, is? Well, there's two reasons. One may be is that iron is very inflammatory mm-hmm. and actually makes inflammation worse mm-hmm. when the immune system is turned on. And one of those ways is that you lower is your body's just not trying to lower it just the way it evolved over time as a natural reaction to inflammation. There probably is also viscosity in the blood that's a major player Ah. in terms of the ICU uh, as well. And there's probably others that we don't know, but we do know that person is inflamed, treat the inflammation and the anemia will improve. If you Mm -hmm. just try to treat it with iron, actually there's a potential that you could make the inflammation worse. And so your body is adapting because for just, that's just a natural adaptation, right? So that's where you want to look at the whole, not just one thing. So at the risk of really blowing out our topic here, um, do you, <laughs> with infection, there's other organisms there that might be causing a problem. We know there's other organisms there regardless. We know, you know, billions and billions of them, trillions of them. But in a pathogenic organism, infectious state, do you think there's anything to some people saying that those organisms are kind of stealing iron or using up iron or those can benefit from iron and that leading to any more inflammation or more infection risk? It's an important topic. I think I'd say two things is that one is the microbiome is a perfect example of your immune system doesn't fight most of them throughout your lifetime. It has learned to be intolerant of them. Um, And some, it's good to be tolerant and others maybe can't, but it it didn't learn how to figure that out, introduced to our body. But it doesn't fight all those bacteria or fungi and that's a part of a good, healthy immune microbiome. And that's really important. Just that differentiation is we're not smart enough. It's doing its thing. (laughs) You just gotta (laughs) help it do its thing and, you know, get out of its way a little bit because that's hard to micromanage. But and none of us know enough yet to micromanage it, even if yep. we want to. We try. We try sometimes. <laughs> yeah. But then, you know, infections are complicated because our, our immune systems, right, have absolutely evolved through, you know, the eons about that. You know, mm-hmm. why we have sickle cell is because of malaria and creating environments that was in the human body that was less damaged by or less susceptible to malaria. Um, And so those adaptations may not serve you in certain modern environments, but it certainly served you from where our genes came from. And once again, that's really important. That's not the body going wrong. That's the body just set up and evolved for a, a world that's different from what we're living in right now or where we are mostly, depending on where you are in the world. Yeah. And that's an important concept in understanding, right? And I know I'm, go- I'm not to your question yet, but these are kind of those backgrounds that are really important to the way we even think about that. There are things that go wrong in terms of mutations in our body and set us up for this, but part of that's purposeful in how we evolve and develop. Some people right now's immune systems react badly to COVID because of these modern systemic chronic inflammatories, obesity, um, and those changes in the immune system, cardiovascular disease, mm-hmm. right? That's stuff that's happened over a lifetime. Part of it is the way that the body's genetic kind of lottery and evolving in the way that it deals with interferon and its originally responses by the innate immune system to the virus are differentiators as well. Mm-hmm. Part of, so part of it is lifestyle. Part of it is just the genetic lottery and um, that we're by design supposed to have a variety 
that's, you know, that's just the way our organisms work. And I think that helps kind of set back this. By then you're saying different infections can respond differently. You know, we know that some infections hide, some are quite apparent, and they all play different games. And when you have a whole orchestra of the immune system to attend to them in different ways. The iron specifically, I think more about the immune system, but there are certain infections, parasitic or otherwise, that absolutely are changing the way our body absorbs nutrients or taking from it. Um, So I think about it more in those in the GI tract. I think of cancer in terms of that more stealing from the rest of the body, but infections absolutely, you know, are, it's complicated because I wouldn't assume all infections are doing the same things, but I think the concepts apply to some. As a rheumatologist, how does infection come into your practice? So that's where the detective work is ever present. The Mm -hmm. immune system gets turned on by autoimmune, autoinflammatory. It can get turned on by an infection and it can get turned on by cancer. There's not one case that I'm not thinking of all three. It's omnipresent. And that's where that same discipline that I talked about that I try to, I live when I see patients and also try to encourage my patients on why that's the wise course of not guessing at it, but just kind of going through that path that gets you the right answer. And that doesn't mean a lot of testing. It just means like a thoughtful approach because we're all scared of something. We're all seeing someone in our family get hurt by something. We have predispositions that totally judge our of what we're going to react to or be most fearful of. We'll all get to the answer faster by looking at that whole system, taking that survey, and then following the clues as they are, not making the assumption. You can definitely save a little time sometimes, but you'll be wrong a, a big chunk of the time too. <laughs> not worth it. Not worth it. I want to start tying in not only kind of the diet lifestyle Um, pillars of medicine, but also kind of the systemic oppressions that we face because we do not face them equally. So just as you were talking about like the hygiene hypothesis, I was thinking about kids growing up in houses where they were never allowed to play outside or they were inside in maybe even big, beautiful houses, but they were like so clean that their immune systems never got trained for what the world had to offer. And then they were overreactive with more allergies versus kids who are maybe growing up in moldy, you know, falling apart homes where it's like their immune systems can be overwhelmed. But this is also part of an economic inequality. There's also components of allostatic weathering that happen with racism. So how can we address that in a clinic visit? This is where the problem solver, the detective, and the clinician kind of wrapped into one brought up the systemic chronic inflammation. And there's more Mm -hmm. to say there, right? Because the truth is, is that the body, you can't separate out what is coming from physical insults of pollution or chemicals versus not sleeping enough versus sugars or refines versus mental stress or traumas. Or like intergenerational trauma, even, you know. Well, yeah, for sure. First stepping back, all of those come into inflammation in the body. And I do think that inflammation, one another way that we're ready to probably talk about differently is I think about inflammation as um, just like the Eskimos have so many words for snow, uh-huh. we need more words for inflammation than just that <laughs> blunt one. But for our purposes, yes, it's good, very for good that inflammation in general, yeah. there are many ways to it. And that's why your body doesn't interpret it's coming from this versus that. The refined sugar, the pollution, or the mental stress is it all ends up in the same place and it does a lot of damage metabolically, cardiovascularly, aging of the cell. Now, to your point is, is that what is really dramatic and something that I know the truth is, is that medicalizing social issues is an inefficient way of actually caring for people. 
but mm-hmm. social stresses from trauma to um, threats have an extraordinarily damage done to the body. So remember, the body is always anticipating. The anticipation of harm can do just as much as harm or threat itself. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, I think is at the heart of your question in sensing people and these issues is you're not just harm when something bad happens to you. If it mm-hmm. happens, even rarely, but you're afraid of it happening every day, mm-hmm. the body perceives that trauma every day. And that's mm-hmm. 100% real and does everything to putting your body in the alarm system on, mm-hmm. right? And, mm-hmm. and engaging that part, which puts a whole bed of stresses onto the body that ages our blood vessels, damages our organ, and actually creates more chaos in the immune system. We talked about acute stress over one day, the immune system actually rallies. But as soon as you push that over a couple of days, it actually starts to get more co- uncoordinated. It's that quick. For me and patients, is it's that threat or that unsafe situation or, and that can come from everything. You know, we know that there's so many threats to people and it's not equal. Mm-hmm. Uh, there mm-hmm. can be threats from not being in a safe environment in the home, not being safe in your city or in, in your community. Just having threats at work or always having a pot, you know, things is not the way that the brain is designed to endure. Mm-hmm. It will endure, but there's absolutely physical harm happening. We can measure the microbiome okay right now. We're not great. But mm-hmm. even now we can tell when someone's gone through a horrible stress as a child and still measure those changes 50 years later. So Wait, it, how do we do that? An imprint on the body just by the microbiome changes. And we're not great at the microbiome, but we right, can right. at least see that. It's amazing. Concept of, I'll speak specifically about autoimmune or autoinflammatory is that once your body develops it, it's always, even if it you know gets quieter and more coordinated and is not firing through in a flare, it can't undo learning what it learned. So I'm just going to go ahead and quote you in our conversation before I hit record, which is you can never unscramble the egg. <laughs> it's an important concept in the body. And it is. It comes out and uh, there's so many different examples. You brought up many I've observed in myself, but it's an important concept for uh, someone every time that we relate to our body is that, and not just to mourn about it, but to know that that's part of the challenge as we grow. Clinicians and us people who are listening, if we want to do good things for the world, then one of the things that we want to do is recognize that people will carry their trauma potentially across their lifespan, potentially across generations, and that our work is to be patient with folks and to work to help folks unload whatever trauma they're carrying. And that in a generation, you know, people may or may not actually feel better that our kids that are growing up with even the trauma from coronavirus, even kids who are not able to see grandparents, who are not able to see adults, who are not able to be held by their community. This is going to be a trauma that we as a society and as a world are going to have to really be intentional about undoing in decades to come. It's an incredible point. I think about this or learned it or relearn it all the time and that my observation or, you know, talking to other clinicians is, is that remember, you'll do better with your patients if you take care of the person, not the disease. And it sounds mm-hmm. obvious, but we're trained expertise wise to manage a disease. And mm-hmm. I don't think that in kind of a challenging way, but something that circle of what involves the person, it keeps growing in my mind and learning over years. <laughs> yes. So that yes. There can be, you know, migraines and auto and 
kind of pain syndromes, non-inflammatory, are not separate from sleep. But guess what? Or stress. Guess what? Neither is the lupus or rheumatoid flare. Yeah. They're all triggered by it. And that's not to say, you know, so what I, I definitely have to remind myself as, you know, to move the dial in a visit or with someone, you really have to get focused. Yeah. But getting a deeper understanding of them really does add to your care. And, you know, when a patient doesn't show, when they don't take a medicine, yeah, I mean, it, it could be like, I need to keep you safe. I want you here. It's always your choice to take the medicine, but let's have a conversation as about why that's happening. Right. right. And that's to your point is that, you know, that's something you have to keep reliving and relearning because, you know, part of it's a sensing, part of it is having a process and that developing that relationship. And that's where, you know, one thing that I, I've really encouraged in the medical system is you need more touches, more visits. You can't just have half hour or 15 minutes once or even an hour once to get into it. Learning happens in layers and that yeah. growing understanding. And I would, one thing that I would like the system to value more is that uh, clinician patient relationship and understanding that it's a continuum over time that you learn best and you get gain those instincts together, not just in this interaction and that's it. And that's how this medical system still manages it. And it holds back even a clinician to do it to the best of their ability. And then taking a personal responsibility is, yeah, the consciousness and that understanding that we bring and, and, and that patience to the visit can always be done in any environment. And that's yeah. where that's on us. If you were going to change kind of how rheumatology was practiced to make it more effective for people, what kind of changes would you institute? Oh, I love these questions. I would <sighs> preface it by just saying that I think depending where you are in the country or you know city versus community could also differ. Uh -huh. But what I do think that would be best is right now, if I spend extra time for a patient and get a better outcome, unfortunately, the system rewards, the patient's rewarded, and the clinician suffers. Mm -hmm. So you can certainly go above and beyond every day, but I think we live our values better. And the system could say for rheumatology, actually, you could use it in different ways. If you're part of a group, then let the diagnostician be a part of that from an earlier standpoint. We have mm -hmm. a shortage of rheumatology in the country. There's not enough of us to get through. Mm -hmm. So there's always this rationing of the people who really need us get to us and step back. I think overall medical education, musculoskeletal complaints are several of the top disabilities and visits to the doctor from back pain to otherwise. And the general education of musculoskeletal needs better focus in our in training beyond rheumatology. It really, from disability dollars to doctor's visits and clinicians and use of services, back pain is extraordinary. Mm -hmm. um, and, and if it takes just those few rheumatologists getting to figure it out, then that's trouble. Um, yeah. So I think that it, that's where I'm hedging on the aspect of, but for me to care of my disease conditions directly to my patients, I would just want, I think telemedicine is incredibly important for patients to have to leave work, to mm -hmm. make that visit, to give up all that stuff, to wait in the office, to go do that stuff for things that this ongoing chronic care doesn't mm -hmm. work. Mm -hmm. They're trying to do their best. We're trying to do our best. And there's a chasm of the needs in between. Yeah. The best way to use clinicians is to allow those multiple kind of touch points from the medical system. Mm -hmm. And there's great data to show it actually gets better outcomes for the patient. The system saves money and you're actually going to value the clinician's work better. That, mm -hmm. that, would, that is. The other part that I did and I did encourage through friends in government is... If you're actually going to manage three problems, 
versus sending it to three different doctors, then value that with the modifiers. Mm -hmm. That would actually change practice in the way you're able to logistically do it, mm -hmm. not just doing it like at your detriment, but actually having it valued and actually lead to more coordinated care for the patient. Yeah. So modifiers being like how we code our visits for insurance coverage and how we're care of two or three problems. The whole complaint from my patients is the lack of value in primary care. Yeah. That, cl that clinicians, do the system doesn't pay for an organizer or a coordinator. And that's a fundamental flaw, not to yep. be judgmental, but it's just every day we run patients run yep. up against this. And then two is as a clinician handles more problems, it's not valuing that. And so no. that leads to this more dissection of care. You know, you want to be put in the position to do your best work. Yeah, we can all be resilient and overcome. Actually, I haven't seen that being a problem amongst clinicians. And I think that absolutely, but you, you need the right soil to grow, right? right and I do right, think that those right. are the things. I would even beyond that, then those are the day-to-day -day threats or kind of holding back. But I would love to be able to have, can you imagine televisits and having two specialists at the same time that you can't? Yeah. Because we do have different knowledge. We do hold different experience and different knowledge. So being able to share that for the benefit of a patient is tremendous. It's a coordination, right? Just sort of talking about the immune mm -hmm. system. The medical system could allow a better coordination as opposed to right now, it has not just walls, but obstructions to that. Right, um, right. And it takes a lot every day to go above and beyond on those complexities. And certainly uh, all good clinicians do it, but it comes at a consequence and, you know, you're dividing time. And, you know, I'd like to see that higher on the priority of the system <laughs> that would, and to the point is it would help all outcomes. Yeah. Financial outcomes would be improved. Personal outcomes would be better. Satisfaction would be better. Yeah. And some of the major medical systems are probably doing a better job than this, but that's not feasible in a lot of situations. Like there's so few rheumatologists that we actually manage for a, like, we're not in one system. Right. I have to interact with at least a dozen different systems. Right. They don't have enough to go around and have one. <laughs> That'd be a luxury that I don't know. And some people are in those and that's wonderful. And I'm sure that's a better situation for some of this coordination. What can patients do from their side if they are excited about what they've learned about rheumatology from today and the immune system and allergies and infections and um, the innate and adaptive systems, where can they go for more information? Or do you have books that you love, websites you love? Oh. People can definitely find you at Dr. Padula, <laughs> P-A-D-U-L-A.com. Yes, I probably don't have the biggest online presence um, right now. <laughs> You're busy. Uh, on purpose. No, not for that reason, but more about like, you know, I enjoy the, the specifics with a person and it is important to, to get these kind of pathways better for people. Yeah. For autoimmune processes, American College of Rheumatology is well-sourced and really does a good job curating their information. The Arthritis Foundation has been very helpful for patients and a wonderful day-to-day -day resource. You know, from that, I would say you have to see the purpose of the place that you're seeking the information from. And because okay. there's a lot of good ones, but they all have tilt. They, there's untruthful and just kind of pushing out that's obviously a danger, mm -hmm. but there's also, you know, that's the availability online of a multiple resources, right? If you mm -hmm. look at clinical trials, PubMed and clinicaltrials.gov are mm -hmm. wonderful to see availability. Sometimes the science articles are not the best ones who are interpreting science. <laughs> right, 
That's right? That's so and, true. Yeah. What does well, it mean? Because there's the results and then there's the meaning of those results. And then we see, you know, the media across the wide does a great job of kind of getting out information, but it's hard to kind of, how do you label that? Often that tagline is not the full yeah. truth of what's in the study. And that's yeah. not a falsehood. That's just kind of like, it's it's to get clicks. And, and that's always to be wary. But the direct scientific literature is tough and dry and, you know, has to be evolved, right? You don't want to mm-hmm. look at one study. It's about that evolution. So I think that media, I think we're in a challenging time across the boards for that. And it's just because these are complex areas and a lot of thoughts and insights are really important. But Mm -hmm. even the facts, if uh, any one article is is putting out about one study, it's not sharing the negative studies about the same thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's a real dance that I have not been able to kind of gracefully give people an ABC to, but really kind of do want to say, you know, be on the outlook for agendas. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then also read through it so you get to know the different, you know, authors. I mean, you have one one sign, there's Zainab Trafaki at The Atlantic, who's been doing these extraordinary works. And Atlantic articles are so in-depth that it shies people away from these dig deep deep dives about mm-hmm. what's the take home. But mm-hmm. she's done extraordinary work in a sense of all this back and forth with COVID of something that I love going to those, but realize mm-hmm. that's a that's a dedication of time to really get into something. Mm-hmm. And the other stuff is that you have to take the other stuff, even in the really responsibly written, you know, kind of interpretation of science articles to the public as because every time I look at all the major ones from WebMD to Cleveland Clinic to the Harvard Letter Medical stuff, there's still summaries. Mm-hmm. I know how to do that person one-on-one. I don't know how to write a summary for readers coming from every different place in the country with different things. Right. I, I, that's a deep respect for trying to do that. So it's not a criticism. It's just like none of them are complete. They go back to being so watered down that yep. it comes back to what's really me as a reader helping me, right? Yep. yep. Everyone's tired of hearing, oh, sleep better, turn off the electronics, eat better. Yes. The nuance is in under when you really get an article that goes into listen, you're being challenged by so many messages every day, so many good smelling foods that if you just put this in a ratio of holding back most of the time, you're going to run out of the willpower to stop. It really is evolving that relationship with self. And just like your immune system is trying to identify all those things, our interpretation of media is the same way. There's a lot of good information there, but we have to raise our game of learning how to take in the inputs and saying what's good for us and what's too much and what's the right dosages of those different the, <laughs> Yes, of the media appetite. Yes. Interesting. We're not getting a full answer. <laughs> I know. I know. I thought, yes. I mean, and that's the thing. I do feel like rheumatology is so under-resourced that the rheumatologists that are out there are dug in and kind of, you know, under... I just see like mounds of patients or mounds of need. And so I don't feel like we hear a lot from rheumatologists in a world that is like filled with questions about immunity, infection, just aches and pains, autoimmune disease, you know, a growing burden. This is where good clinicians from every specialty in every space are handling all those things on some level. And that's really the part is that rheumatology is not the answer to all the problems. Um, It's an important one. I obviously value it and do think that the system could be benefited by more, but good clinicians from every specialty and primary care are doing extraordinary work. Like we need to put them in a position to be able to have that time with the patient to explore these things, right? Absolutely. So much of the, um, 
and these are medical system challenges that like that can evolve further. It's not just one reason. It's not bad intention. It's, you know, yeah. I, I really do think about how can I, I try to pay a lot of time is how can I put myself in the best position to be good for, for the patient? And how can I put my patients in a position to achieve? And you have to prioritize so that. And so hopefully we can keep moving in the right direction there. Woo! And there you have it, folks. So before we close, is there anything else you want to mention? Any other topics on your mind? Any other things we shouldn't close today without saying? One thing I would say is that I would close coming from the immune system and looking at the whole person is going back to that coordination and the orchestra is especially as we come into this, you know, huge challenge of COVID and both the psychological and social changes, as well as the physical threats is that the basics that have come about in terms of when we preach about what's good for someone, okay? Mm -hmm. You don't have to be perfect, okay? And the immune system benefits from the same things that help slow down or prevent cancer to cardiovascular disease, to the way the body balances in the day-to-day. It all shares the same benefits. So if you can, just be active, eat a couple (laughs) more veggies, turn off the electronics a couple times during the day, Uh and value sleep and your connections to other people. That actually applies to lowering heart disease, heart attacks, cancer, autoimmune inflammation, as well as the way the immune system causes a faster aging than needs to happen. That's where life's being stolen from people. And we've all heard those things, but to know that it's directly tied in simple ways, you don't have to be perfect to get significant benefits. And I really think that once again, that valuing of that and saying, that's not a little thing, just that little bit goes long yeah. ways with all these things. And you'll perceive it as the avoidance of all these things happening. <laughs> yes. Any of them, yeah. not just dealing with it when it comes about. And that is a hard shame shift, but it is well worth it. And that's that if I can impart that to anyone, that's what I would love. So you're saying we start in whatever shoes we stand and one tiny step is beneficial. We just got to in any direction. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one tiny step in any direction. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. And thank you all of our listeners for listening today with Dr. Anthony Padula, rheumatologist. We've got lots of ways to continue this conversation through Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also get more information from and about Dr. Padula at his website, drpadulapadula.com, or about us and our website, centerforhealingneurology.com. And please be sure to share the show with your friends, especially anybody with an ache or a pain or an allergy or maybe some kind of chronic infection. And we welcome your rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Feel free to send your topic requests to podcast at centerforhealingneurology.com. And we love that you've joined us today to discuss how to make our whole world medicine. We rise or fall together and we're committed to doing what we can to make as many of us as healthy as possible. And this takes all of us, including you. Thank you for listening and see you next time. Party Fish Media acknowledges that it operates and records on indigenous Duwamish and Puget Sound Coast Salish land that is still home to the Duwamish tribe. This land is stolen in violation of the Point Elliott Treaty of 1855. We are committed to uplifting the name of these lands and community members from these nations who reside alongside us. For more information on this land, its people, or ways you can help, visit duwamishtribe.org or realrentduwamish.org.